On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were incredibly talented people. To have them joined by George and Ringo, tremendous personalities in their own right, to form a team, it was invincible. So please, love me I'd just do impressions of Elvis, Little Richard, and we'd do Everly Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis, and then eventually you'd, it'd level out into your voice. Yeah, well, that's that was our whole thing. We performed from before we were famous. We just performed all the time. Hi, this is Denny Somag, the producer, the author, the rock historian. Over my long career, I've curated my archive, and I'm here to share it with you. On this episode, it's all Beatles. Anita? You know, generally speaking, you don't really need any reason to talk about the Beatles. But, you know, when I heard about this, I was wondering why Peter Jackson would be the one. Apparently, he has a film that he did where he developed techniques uh, that they're going to use for what used to be called get back, but now let it be right. Let it be. And now it's get back. Okay. So he did a film called they shall not grow old about the first world war. And he's going to use that film technique to transform the footage. Right. Yeah. It's really cool. Production. And then they're going to also remaster and re-release the film. And, you know, I watch, I went on YouTube to see, because I didn't quite remember what took place during that film. And they have about 40 minutes of the uh, film or, I don't know, outtakes or something on YouTube. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, wow, this could be possibly the first reality show. Because the way they were, the the Beatles were interacting and uh, you could see just what was wrong. (laughs) Just what had happened to their relationships. And George is just, you could see he's so over it. I think there's even a moment where he walks out yeah. and of course Yoko is there. She's there and uh, you know, they're ignoring her at this point, but they really can't. And Paul's looking one way and John it, it's re- yeah. So I'm going to be very anxious to see how Peter Jackson uh, turns this around. Cause I saw the trailer and it looks like they all love each other so much in the trailer. So it, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. I can't wait to see it. The widows of uh, the Beatles are all on board for this. So. I want to start with some comments from Peter Jackson on the forthcoming film that covers the making of the Beatles 1970 album, Let It Be, which had the working title, Get Back. 
Now, he got all the original footage that was shot for the documentary of the album, and this is what he has to say. Hi, everybody, especially any Beatles fans who are watching this. Uh, This is Peter Jackson, and welcome to our cutting room, where we're working on our new movie, The Beatles Get Back. Now, this film was due to be finished around about now, but like the rest of the world, it's been affected by the COVID pandemic. And the only good thing, really, is that we're editing the movie in New Zealand. And now that our country has largely stamped out the virus, we are able to come back into the cutting room and carry on with the editing that we're doing. So here we are. We've got 56 hours of never-before-seen Beatles footage. And it's really great stuff. And um, I would say we're about halfway through the edit now. But because you've been so patient and the film's been delayed until 2021, we thought it was a good time to give you a little sneaky preview of what we've been working on and the sort of vibe and the energy that the film's going to have. It's not a trailer and it's not a sequence from the film. It's like a montage of moments that we've pulled from throughout the 56 hours of footage that we have and it just gives you a sense of the spirit of the film that we're making. And for that forthcoming film, Jackson was given over 55 hours of footage and 140 hours of audio from the original project. They were all made available to him. It's also going to include uh, the full 42-minute rooftop concert, which ultimately became the final public performance of their career. So, that's something to uh, look forward to. You may remember that you too referenced it when they did their video for where the streets have no name. They, they did a similar rooftop concert. I think that was 87. Were you in LA? Yeah, well, I, I was living at Franklin and La Brea. So the fact that they uh, closed down Hollywood Boulevard right there, I remember being really pissed off. But then when I found out it was you too, I, I actually think I drive by in the video, but you don't see my car. But yeah, when I found out it was, I looked up, I was like, oh my God, you two's up on that roof. So then I wasn't as mad as I normally would have been. But yeah, I remember the day they closed down Hollywood Boulevard. You well, know. We'll see. The movie's coming. I can't we'll wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. Okay, so the other reason that we're talking Beatles is that Denny's new book about the Beatles was scheduled to come out last year. But because of the pandemic, uh, I know you had to cancel your book tour yep. and you couldn't promote it. So you're going to have to do it here with me. I'm sorry about that. You must be <laughs> very disappointed. Your book is called A Walk Down Abbey Road, and it's a collection of Beatles stories uh, from various musicians as well as people that worked with the Beatles and interviews from the Beatles themselves. And it is available uh, online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place you get your book, correct? Yes. Any place that you buy books, you can get it, unlike mine, which is only available at Amazon.com. <laughs> right. But I would recommend not going into the store. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> Right. Com, Amazon. Yeah. Anyway. Get them to deliver that book. But yeah, so congratulations on that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really proud of you. You know, anyone can write one, but how many books do you have now? Uh, four. Four. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But by the, by the way, when I had my first book out, my first Beatles book in 89, yeah. I was on your show and you were doing talk radio and you interviewed me. Yeah. And I do have the tape somewhere. I don't have it here. Oh, we have but to I'll, play it. I'll dig it up. I would love to hear that. I think it would be hysterical. To Were you in that. person in the studio? Or on yeah, the- yeah, no, I was Wow, there. okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, that was for WCAU. 
Yeah. So uh, anyway, in keeping with our uh, tradition of bringing you stories from the artists themselves firsthand, uh, I have comments from Billy Joel and Elton John, producer Sir George Martin, the Isley Brothers. And then I have a real surprise, a rare interview clip of John Lennon that has not been previously broadcast. It was recorded from a phone call to Amsterdam during the famous Bed In for Peace. That's coming up in, in, in a little while. So uh, let me just give you the, the background. All these interviews in the book were done over the years, about 40-some years, for various programs that I worked on. And uh, people started asking me, hey, you know, you only use a couple of minutes. Could we see the, can we listen to the rest of the interviews or can we read them? Or, you know, I thought, you know what, I got all these interviews. I think I'll see if I can put a book together. So that's what I did. And here we are. The book is called A Walk Down Abbey Road. The foreword is written by uh, Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees. And I hope you all enjoy it. But we're going to play some clips. So, Anita, what do you want to hear? Uh, you tell me. I know you talked to Billy Joel. Billy Joel talks about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. By the way, I'm sure you were like everyone else, right? You saw the Beatles there. Of course. Of okay, course. Well, yeah. All right. Well, here's, here's Billy telling about the day the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan and, and what happened to him uh, when he saw that show. I really had no idea that it was possible to be a rock and roll star until the Beatles. Before the Beatles, it was either soul music, and I was a kid from Levittown, so what kind of soul did I have at that point? I didn't, wasn't aware that I had any. I thought you had to be from the you know, ghetto in Philadelphia. Uh, and there were the, uh, the manufactured rock stars, a Fabian or a Frankie Avalon, or the pretty boys who seemed to be um, put together by a Hollywood conglomerate with a lot of money behind him. And there was really no idea that you could play an instrument, write your own music, go out and perform it, and be big at it. You had, it looked like you know, that wasn't the, uh, in, the, in the cards. And I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. They were these guys. They didn't look like they came uh, from the San Fernando Valley. They looked like these four working-class scruffs. John Lennon had this wise guy look on his face, just like me and my friends were just a bunch of wise guys, street kids, playing their own instruments, doing their own arrangements, writing their own songs on TV on Ed Sullivan next to, uh, you know, Roberta Peters or whoever else was on. It made it all possible. It made it all conceivable. I, that's what I want to do. I grew up with them. I mean, as I got older and I changed, they changed. And it was a big part of life. That was a big deal about the 60s. There were no limitations to them. They did everything. They did ballads. They did rock and roll. They did some country. They did some blues. They did... They covered the spectrum, which is, I think, the best way to be for a musician, to be eclectic, to be a renaissance person. There was a period, I remember, with the Beatles, uh, where their words got very obscure and was attributed to psychedelics or drugs, whatever it was. And I remember there was a time, in late, mid to later 60s, a lot of my friends were sitting around smoking banana peels going, crack-a-lock-a fishwife polyester, that means that's a reference to, and I said, come on, it's just nonsense. And this, it's creative nonsense, and everybody was trying to figure out the deeper meaning. The great thing about the Beatles, for people not to get hung up in this whole drug thing with them, was their music was eminently listenable without any kind of psychedelics, anything like that. It was, that's not what they were about. I didn't do any drugs in the 60s. Everybody was, you know, smoking. I didn't know from none of that stuff. I enjoy listening to them immensely. Well, I think anybody who ever heard Billy Joel uh, can immediately... Uh, hear the influence that the Beatles had on his music. And of course, Billy performs Beatles songs. Uh, 
He's done over two dozen over the course of his career. And on any given night, you could hear him do A Day in the Life, Revolution, I'll Cry Instead, which is a great choice, by the way. And you can imagine, I mean, close your eyes and just think about Billy Joel singing back in the USSR. Uh, I'd like to think of Italian Restaurant as his most Beatlesque song. But um, the thing that amazes me the most is that Billy claims that he listened to the Beatles straight. Yeah. I don't believe that. Well, you know. <laughs> he would be he was the only one. Yeah, well everybody else he was the hey, only one sitting around going, Those lyrics are nonsense. Don't smoke it, pot. It's my <laughs> it's my job to get the interviews. I can't verify them. You should have put okay? the poly on them. Oh, yeah, well, put them on right. the poly. Anyway, there, there, there's interviews from Stephen Tyler, Hart, Rolling Stones, the Isley Brothers, Phil Collins is in the book, Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend. There's over fifty people, uh, including Elton John. And he talks about his relationship with uh, John Lennon. By the way, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Lennon became very close to Elton John. And Elton was actually Sean Lennon's godfather, which I don't think a lot of people knew that. But uh, anyway, here's Elton John on John Lennon. whatever gets you through the night and I sang on another track on Walls and Bridges and Tony King who worked for Apple at that time who was looking after John who now looks after Mick Jagger um, said you know introduced us and and I played on it and sang on it and we made a sort of not a really hard bargain that if it got to number one he would come on stage but he kept his bargain I've never met anybody more thoughtful you read in the books that John was very cruel and had a very cynical sense of humour and I've seen that side of him too and the crazy side of John but underneath it all um I was with him at a particularly crazy period for him and for me. And I did, I never saw anything else but kindness. And uh, I kind of get a little, for him, he's sacred to me. He absolutely He's the only person in this business that is totally 100% sacred. And even if I'm doing bad things to myself or if I'm being totally miserable and morose and being unreasonable with people, I sometimes think, oh, my God, John, you're going to give me a... If there is a big pearly gates there, you're going to be standing outside it and giving me the biggest lecture because he's the only person in this business I've ever looked up to, the only person. I was thinking about Elton John, you know, uh, doing the Marlon Brando godfather thing. <laughs> but, hey, by the way, whatever gets you through the night, that's on my list of top 30 Beatles songs. That's a great, great song. I, I love that song. Um, and Elton... Uh, was in the midst of a three-year farewell tour. He likes to really give the big goodbye. Three years uh, <laughs> when the pandemic hit. And um, of course, he hopes to be out on the road again this year. But in true Elton fashion, you know what Elton's been doing during the pandemic, during the lockdown? No. He's been splitting his time. He attends online AA meetings so he can uh, keep his sobriety in check. And in his spare time, he just played on Miley Cyrus's album of Metallica covers, and they recorded Nothing Else Matters. And now that I've heard that, Nothing Else Matters to me. I got to hear that. Can you, can you get down with that, Denny? <laughs> yes, I'm down with it. But uh, here, we're, we're going we're gonna to joggle, joggle or jiggle your memory here. Uh, we're going to have, okay. right. okay. have a few programs in the future on the Beatles, as I mentioned. But for this show, uh, I have some comments regarding how the Beatles first came to America and the start of Beatlemania. Beatlemania was an America 
American phenomenon. It wasn't, uh, there was no Beatlemania in Britain. And the main reason for that was uh, the Beatles played, uh, the biggest places you can play in Britain were like two and 3,000 seat uh, theaters. They didn't play stadiums and auditoriums. So when they, of course, came to America for the 64 tour, every place was a stadium or uh, an indoor arena. And that's how Beatlemania developed because of all the uh, hysteria. Anyway, to give you a little uh, reminder of what that was like when the Beatles first came to America and just show you how ridiculous it was, um, let me set the scene with this reporter at JFK Airport. It's just wild here. The four Beatles have... have left the airplane. They're standing on the ramp, or rather on the uh, stairway, going down. There's that fabulous hairdo. And one of them is standing and he's jumping and he's wiggling and he's waving his fingers. Oh, look at him wiggle. Look at him wiggle. Look at him wiggle. Screaming girls, fainting girls everywhere you looked. Well, for the first time uh, that most of us saw the Beatles, it was on TV on the Ed Sullivan Show, but there was a four-minute report by Edwin Newman before that, on November 18th, 1963, on the Huntley-Brinkley Report. And then on November 22nd, the CBS Morning News ran a five-minute feature on Beatlemania in the UK. But that evening's scheduled repeat of that show was canceled due to the uh, assassination of President Kennedy. So nobody saw it. But then, on December 10th, Walter Cronkite ran the piece on the CBS Evening News. And I interviewed Cronkite uh, for the book. Uh, This was years ago, obviously. Um, And this is what he told me. Actually, the first place that the Beatles ever appeared on television in the United States was on CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. We we had a report from London uh, and a little feature story on this, uh, these four kind of way out guys who were singing in Liverpool and making a big uh, splash in the uh, Midlands. So uh, we sent a reporter up. I think it was Morley Safer who did the first piece. And we had it on the air, and Ed Sullivan was such a superb showman that Ed called me be- almost before I was off the air and said, who were those four guys? And uh, I told him the name. I had to look it up. I said, I don't remember. I have to look in, I'll have to look in the script for what the names were. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to try to get them over here. And that was the beginning of their coming to the States. I think they would have come probably anyway eventually, but that is the historical record of how they happened to come here. Yes, and as far as the radio goes, it was disc jockey Carol James of WWDC in Washington, D.C., who obtained a copy of the British single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, in mid-December and began playing it. And local record shops were flooded with requests for a record they did not have in stock. And that gets them angry. Anyway, James uh, sent the record, started sending it around the country to other disc jockeys, and that's how Beatlemania got started in America. Here's the uh, actual clip of the Beatles meeting Carol James at WWDC. I found this 
when I was uh, producing the official 40th anniversary of the Beatles in America, I had the opportunity to go through the uh, Capitol Records archive. So now you get to hear it. George, are the only uh, Beatle who had been in America before this trip, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Went to visit your sister uh, last uh, few months ago. Yeah, September. At that time, did anybody out there know of the Beatles no. especially? Nobody out here either. In New York, I went into a record shop to ask if they'd ever heard of us, and they hadn't. <laughs> you know, that was October. That was October, and then we started hearing things in this country, I guess, first around November, and uh, in December, WWDC flew your record, oh, I Want to yeah. Hold You. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thanks, that was great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, you're very welcome. I'd like you to meet the young lady right after we're finished talking here. Marsha Albert is... Come on in here very quickly, Marsha, and then we have to... Marcia. Good old Marsha. Come here. Because I know the... Marsha Albert. This is Hello, George hi, Harrison. Marcia. Hello, Paul. Marcia. There is... Uh, Marsha Bug. Hello, Marcia. Now, Thanks you know everybody. They call you the Chief Beetle. Is that... Uh, you're, you're all... On an equal Look, I don't footing. call you names. Don't you call me names. <laughs> so, Denny, tell us about your friend Larry Kane, who I know from Philly. Larry's the only newsman to accompany the Beatles, and he's featured in the Beatles documentary Eight Days a Week. Yeah, uh, the, this first clip we're, we're going to play is from an interview with John Lennon. And uh, Larry, you know, and we'll have Larry on. Uh, I just talked to him this afternoon, in fact. We'll have him on a later show. We'll have him by himself to just tell inside stories. But anyway, uh, his interviews with the Beatles are amazing because it was early in their career. Larry was like the designated guy that was there to get interviews for all, all the other people. So he really uh, didn't have competition in having to try and get them for a few minutes. He was able to get them pretty much whenever they wanted. So Larry Kane uh, was able to get uh, tremendous access to the Beatles because he was the designated reporter on the tour. So this first clip is from an interview with John Lennon after he played a concert with the Beatles at Comiskey Park in Chicago. I think this is, yeah, the 65 tour. Uh, they just got done playing a 12-song set. It was like 31 minutes was the length <laughs> of the set. And there were four opening acts. Anyway, this was actually between shows as they played an afternoon concert and an evening concert, if you can believe that. Uh, so s just think about this, having this kind of access to be able to get John Lennon to discuss his family life, uh, very revealing. Listen to this. With me, I have John Lennon in the uh, basement of Comiskey Park in Chicago. John, uh, last year, most of the concerts were indoors, and this year, the um, majority of them have been outdoors. Which do you like better? Uh, I, don't, I don't care, you know, as long as it's not raining, I don't mind where it is. You guys today were as loose as I've ever seen you, I mean, just as relaxed. Was there any particular reason for this, or it just come naturally? I think it's, I mean, when you're playing just after you've got up in the morning, we tend to be hysterical in the morning, either very grumpy or hysterical, you know. So we were just sort of still really half asleep, you know. Here's a question I asked Ringo. Uh, which, which role do you like better? And there are basically two roles in your life. Uh, your job as a Beatle and uh, your role at home uh, as John Lennon, uh, the guy from Liverpool, and John Lennon, the Beatle. Uh, which do you like better? Uh, it's a tough question to ask, I know. It's not that tough because they're so intermingled, you know. It's, I'm still, I'm no different, you see. I don't look upon it as two different jobs. I change a bit when I leave home, you know, because I've got to smile more or something. I don't know. We all do. But... I could only stand being John Lennon at home for so long, 
and I can only stand being John Lennon and Beatle out on tour for so long. So either one, there's no preference, you know. I couldn't stand living without one or the other, without both of them. Well, you know, Larry sensed somehow the importance of it all before anybody could possibly know that. You know, he, you, you just, you can tell that he sensed how important it was for him to be there, even though he was pretty much a kid and pretty straight-laced, as, as we mentioned. I, I can't wait to talk to him. Well, I'm going to tell you something, just so you know, and this will, I don't mean to tell stories out of school, but since we're going to have Larry on, he can, he'll tell you this story. Larry actually said no the first time he was asked. He was a reporter in uh, Miami, radio reporter, a newsman. How, in well, Miami. how young was he at the time? He was 21. Okay. So and he was allowed his, to go. His parents didn't stop him. Yeah. So uh, Larry had, you know, wrote a letter to Brian Epstein as a newsman saying, hey, we read about what the Beatles are doing. We'd like to cover it for the station, blah, blah, blah. And he gets a letter back from Brian Epstein because Brian, you know, he didn't know how radio worked over here. And Larry said that the station he worked for in Florida, they owned five stations and they had the five logos on the stationery. So he sent the letter to Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein saw it. And he thought, God, this guy is like a radio behemoth. Uh, he's got all these stations and this is unbelievable. Let's invite him to tour with us. So he gets a letter inviting him to tour. And Larry goes to the program director and he goes, I can't believe it. I got a letter back from Brian Epstein and he wants somebody to accompany the Beatles and give reports. So the program director told him to do it. And Larry said, oh, come on, I'm a newsman. I don't want to spend six months on something that, you know, a year from now, nobody's going to remember. And the program director said, no, you're, you're the newsman. You really need to go. So Larry went out and bought a suit at Robert Hall and picked up the tour in San Francisco. But well, he's got he, great stories. Yeah, he fooled me because I thought he, he interviewed them as, but I guess it's just from being a dedicated newsman. He just treated it as a big story. You yeah, know, you got to remember, he, he, he's down there in Florida. He's covering right. the Cuban Missile Crisis. Exactly. And the, Be- and the Beatle thing comes up. So, exactly. you know, he's, he's telling the burger, now get one of the jocks to do it. I, I got too much stuff to do. Anyway, uh, his, his stories are just really great. So uh, that's one thing that he gave us. We have two more things here. So this next clip is a very rare and exclusive interview that Larry did with John Lennon, uh, who was at the Amsterdam Hilton when John and Yoko were holding the bed in for peace. You remember all that stuff? So uh, this would be between March 25th and 31, 1969. They spent their honeymoon in the presidential suite. That's room 702, inviting the world press in. And some of this is recounted in the ballad of John and Yoko, the song. And as I said, Larry just called him up. He got right through and you're about to hear it. I'll let Larry do his little intro here first, and then we'll go right into the interview. It was in 1969 when John Lennon married Yoko Ono and shocked the world with a bed in in Amsterdam. This was at the time my exclusive interview with him. He was in bed with Yoko while we conversed. Okay, go ahead. Hello, John. Hi, Larry. How are you? Uh, how are you doing? Okay. Listen, I wanted to ask you a few questions about yeah, sure. uh, the marriage. Uh, first of all, how's, uh, how's marriage? Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, are you putting on the world uh, with this uh, latest uh, latest incident in Amsterdam, or are you just having fun, or just what? Uh, look, uh, we're, not, we're putting people on as well, you know, but the main thing is we dedicated the first week we've had off instead of having it private. We've sort of uh, dedicated it to world peace, you know, and we believe that sincerely. And whatever the 
sort of reaction is most of the photographs have our po posters on the bed, you know, that we've got behind the bed. And we're getting over the... Uh, and the, there's two pieces in one, like two events. It's like a happening event kind of thing. Only the happening is that we stay in bed for seven days and seven nights, or stay in the room mainly. And uh, that which is pretty uh, heavy going, really, even for a honeymoon. Are you trying uh, trying this as somewhat of an anti-war protest? Yeah, sure, it's a protest against violence, you know. And also, the other part of the protest is called hair peace, which is uh, peace spelled with a P-A-C, it's a pun on P-I-E, etc., etc., is that instead of uh, smashing things up, the people just grow their hair as a form of protest till there's just so many hairy people that they, can, they, they carry a continuous sign of their protest, you know. What do the other uh, Beatles think about this, John? I don't know, though, because Paul's over there, and George is busy in London, and Ringo's making the film, so I'll find out when I get back, you know. This is probably the first uh, attempt at its kind of making a baby in public, isn't it? Well, I don't know about making a baby in public, you know, but, I mean, uh, it's not exactly making love in but it's conceptually making love in public, you know. It's just somewhat of a message to the world, right? Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, we've dedicated a week of our time. Now, a lot of people, cynics sort of say, ah, oh, well, it's easy. You know, rich, staying in the Hilton, you know, staying in bed a week, but just try it anywhere. And this isn't because we have time to spare, because we don't. You know, this is, a, this is a, a, the first two weeks, either of us, I haven't had any time off since India, which was over a year ago, and Yoko hasn't taken a holiday in three or four years. So, so we... We, we sincerely are dedicating this time we have to peace, you know. So to all the cynics who say that it's uh, something dirty or uh, something dirty or something filthy, you just say that it's a dedication to peace. It is, and if the worst thing that happens is we give somebody a laugh, well, that's okay too, you know. Trying to make the world, trying to make the world a little happier. Yeah, I'm, I think you know, everybody's, we both think everybody's getting a little bit serious about it. And although it is serious, you still need laughs, you know, and we're here to provide laughs, at least some laughs as well as some sounds, etc., and some films. John, it was good talking to you again, and best wishes on your marriage. Thanks, Larry, and nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Standing in the dockets of Hampton Trying to get to Holland or France The man in the match says you've got to go I have a story now from Roger Daltrey of The Who and uh, then Beatles producer Sir George Martin. So Daltrey was just a starstruck fan when he first encountered the Beatles. He says uh, they had the chance to open for them at the Blackpool Opera House. Roll it. We opened uh, once for them at the Blackpool Opera House. And, uh, well, I remember we were going down in the elevator to the stage to open for them, and they got in the elevator, and we all stood there, dumbstruck. I mean, literally, it's them! <laughs> and uh, we did our act and smashed our gear up. This, this was before we had hit records or anything, and the crowd, the crowd was screaming their heads off, even at us. God knows why. <laughs> and uh, we came off, they went on, and we just could not believe the noise. You couldn't hear one note they played. 
it was just incredible. So, Danny, where did your interview with uh, George Martin take place? Yeah, it was at the ultimate place, Abbey Road Studios, and it was the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper celebration. They had a party with a cake and some guests. And in fact, uh, Alan Parsons invited me. That's how I got in. I don't know anybody there. I knew him. And at the time, uh, you know, he was, uh, I think he was general manager uh, of Abbey Road at the time. So he invited me. Roy Orbison was there. George Martin was there. Paul McCartney was there. A bunch of other people. Anyway, after that, we sat down after the party to interview Sir George. And he talks about the first time he heard the Beatles. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were incredibly talented people. I mean, Paul still is. Uh, extraordinarily talented songwriters. And for the two of them to get together in itself was amazing. But for, to have them joined by George and Ringo, tremendous personalities in their own mm. right, uh, to form a team, it was invincible. I, I was, it's extraordinarily lucky that, that, that they ever came together. And I was very lucky that I joined them too. I was looking for a group. Uh, in 1962, I was running the part of own label. I was already had quite a few artists that were selling very well, but um, I felt that I could do something extra. I heard from a publisher that there was a guy walking around with some tapes that was interesting, and he was he my publisher, and he sent me Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein came in and played a disc of the Beatles, and I thought, well, it was moderately interesting. I think I'd better have a look at the chaps told Brian to bring the boys down to London. He groaned inwardly, I learnt later, because it was his last chance. He'd been around every other record company in the world. I spent an afternoon with them in the studios at Abbey Road, and I thought they were marvellous. When I first saw them, I, I knew that there was something there. When we made the first record, I knew it wasn't going to be a hit, but I knew all I had to do was find the right song and I would have a, a big hit with them. I didn't know at that stage they could write it. Well, I really uh, enjoyed that great documentary about George Martin. Uh, I, you know, can't think of anybody, no disrespect to uh, Cousin Brucie or Murray the K or Scott Muni, but I can't think of anybody that deserves the title of the fifth Beatle more than George Martin. So I, agree. I don't want to even talk about it. So Anita, one of my favorite stories and one of the last ones I collected for this book, it's a combination story which makes it interesting. It involves the Beatles, but also Jimi Hendrix. Now, let me explain. Okay? I was up at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. That's the studio that Jimi Hendrix built and, of course, immortalized as the title of his third album. In 1968, Jimi Hendrix had bought a defunct nightclub called The Generation, located, I think it was 52 West 8th Street, New York, in the, uh, in the village. And it's uh, the oldest working recording studio in New York. It's still around. So I was there for a press affair for the launch of the new album by Santana and the Isley Brothers. And I had the chance to talk with uh, Ron and Ernie Isley. And I thought I'd get some good Beatles stories. Twist and Shout was a big record for the Beatles. And the Beatles also covered Shout in their early repertoire. And those are both songs that are associated with the Isley Brothers, particularly Twist and Shout. Now, another fact you need to know is that the Isley Brothers had this little-known guitar player in their band. His name was Jimi Hendrix, 
<laughs> That's right. Hendrix played in uh, Little Richard's band. He played with Wilson Pickett. Played with a lot of different people uh, before he went solo. Anyway, the Isleys start telling me this story. There was an unknown guitar player that lived in your house for a couple of years and played in your band for about six months. How did that happen? Well, we needed a guitar player, and I was introduced to him. And uh, when I heard him play, I had not heard of all the guitar players that I'd heard. Never heard anybody play guitar like that before. Uh, and he had uh, a lot of stage presence and um, charisma. He played, and he just played very well. I could tell that he was a great player. The rest of that stuff, uh, when Ed Sullivan had the Beatles on his show for the first time, mm -hmm. and I'm sitting on the couch on the left side, and my younger brother Marvin's sitting on the right side, and Jimmy Hendrix is sitting in the middle, when Ed Sullivan said, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, there was no clap of thunder above our house. You do not know the future. You cannot see the future. <laughs> and a few days later, my eldest brother Kelly had a meeting with the members of the band and the brothers, and he said, you know, amongst other things, this English band has changed everything. And I think we're going to be all right because I understand they do shout and twist and shout, which they did. And uh, he said, I don't know what's going to happen, I mean, even for Elvis, but I think we're going to be all right. Now, they got two guitar players, but we got Jimmy. And when he said... We got Jimmy. I looked over at Jimmy, and Jimmy was grinning ear to ear. Now, did I get that clear? You were sitting watching the Beatles and Ed Sullivan the first with time. Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they did twist and shout. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What did you think? Thought they're doing an Isley Brothers song. That's what they. My, <laughs> my friends on the playground said, "You know, Ernie, uh, the Beatles took your brother's song." I said, "No, they didn't take it. They just been listening." Yeah. <laughs> And they liked what they heard, and I'm glad they did it. Now, you know? did you ever hear, uh, talk to John Lennon when he was alive, or have uh, you ever Paul, talked to Paul McCartney about that? Paul, uh, in uh, upstate New York a few years ago, I went up to him and tapped him on his uh, shoulder, and he uh, stood up and gave me a bear hug. It almost put me out of commission. And both of us are talking at the same time. And I said, Paul, you and George and Ringo and John, you guys are just wonderful. And he said, Ernie, if it were not for the Isley Brothers, the Beatles would still be in Liverpool. I have a couple of things I want to play next. First, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. And I, I know he's told this story before in interviews, but there's something about uh, sitting one-on-one -on -one with Ringo. And he recounts to you what it was like when he arrived in New York City for the first time in February of 64, as the plane is getting ready to land. The excitement started well before that. I mean, and I've shared this before, I felt the excitement 30,000 feet up on the plane when we came to New York. It just was like, we're going to America, you know. Um, and then when we landed, I mean, it was really far out because we were a little worried about America. You know, America is the place. If you're a musician, I don't care. America's the place. And then we landed on the tarmac, and it was incredible. All those kids, and then the hotel. And um, it was just probably one of the most exciting times ever of my life. And we were in a big hotel, and you had TVs in every room, and radios, and, you know, the media madness that we didn't get in England, you know. And the idea that we could talk on the radio <laughs> all these crazy things that seem crazy to you uh, were like the most exciting things we'd ever done you know 
So it was really exciting, and it was exciting from 30,000 feet. I want to conclude the show with another rare clip from my uh, pal Larry Kane, the only newsman to accompany the Beatles on every date, as we said, during both the 64 and 65 tours of America. And he's featured in the documentary Eight Days a Week. Well, Larry conducted the last interview on film of John Lennon and Paul McCartney as Beatles. It was shot in 1968 in New York City. The Beatles were in New York to announce the formation of their new company, Apple. And uh, John makes a very interesting prediction. This is just a little uh, audio clip from that video, but this has never been, uh, never been aired. So here's Larry. John, it's good to see you again. Nice to see you, Larry. <laughs> uh, what is Apple, John? It's a, it's a company we're setting up which involves records, films, electronics, which make records and films work. And uh, what's it called? Manufacturing? Oh, yeah, it does a few things. Yeah. You know, the byproducts that end up with Larry Page uh, T-shirts. And that. It's oh. just trying to mix business with enjoyment. Pleasure. We're in business, you know. We find ourselves in business. Are you, the directors? It, Are you the directors yeah. of this? Yeah. But yeah. like all the profits won't go into our pockets. They'll go to help people, but not like a charity. What do you plan? Somebody so wants works. to make a film and no, they go to a company and they get shown into the waste paper bin <laughs> and uh, nothing ever happens. So they go around, they make an underground one and it goes round and round underground and a lot of people never see it. Right. So if they come to us, they won't stand a chance. <laughs> but we hope to make a thing that's free where people can just come and do and record and not have to ask, could we have another microphone in the studio because we haven't had a hit yet. I see. How expensive, how large will this be here? Oh, well, like that. <laughs> how large will it be in America? We don't know yet. You know, it'll be big, I think. We're just blowing up the balloon. There's lots of things. You know, we just got a friend of ours who's in electronics. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you about this, John, who's called Alex. And he's great. He's a Greek fella. And he's Even invented, he's Greek. He's invented really incredible mean. things, you see. So uh, that'll be big. Well, are, the <laughs> days of the, are the days of the Beatles on stage uh, over? Uh, well, they've been over for the last two years because we've been on land. But uh, you never know, do you? With all these incredible electronics, we might come flying over New York playing one day. Wow, lucky Larry Kane. I would have loved to have been there. Okay, well, this is The Rock Podcast, and if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Check out our website, therockpodcast.com. You can get in touch with us at hello at therockpodcast.com, and uh, you can follow us. We're on Insta and Twitter. We're at The Rock Podcast, and uh, you can get our books on our website. And did I do enough plugging? Yes, you did. So Okay, I'll that's say all that. the plugging for now. Yeah, that's it for now. Thanks for joining us. Till next time. Bye. Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Okay, so this bike feels like he's capable of a little more than just trips to the convenience store. Oh, also, he wants to let you know that you can buy a gallon of ice cream instead of a pint every time. (laughs) Those are his words. So he said roughly like, blink the last wheel. It doesn't really translate, but the way he said it was super funny. (laughs) Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.